broadcasting from a distress call from a Promelian cruiser. This is Politrex. The time directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex, the show where we look at the socio-political happenings of today and in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Trek. Takes as hot as a Klingon pain stick, philosophical and political discussion deeper than a conversation with Data, the Traveler, and the Prophets slash wormhole aliens. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is my often imitated, never replicated co-host, Mr. Shashankavaru. How are things in your end of the quadrant, sir? Namaste, Homo sapiens. Things are great. They've never been better. I am happy to be recording Polytrex again, ready to get some politics on, some Star Trek on. Let's do this, Barry. Awesome. So we are going to get to the news, and we've got uh, some more hot takes coming from uh, not me this time but from Shashank but I think it's merited so before we get to the news how can our lovely listeners get a hold of us on the social medias you can get in touch with us if you want to get our Twitter hot takes on Twitter by following us on at Polytrex that's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S that's the same place where we are on Facebook but you, if you want a quicker response uh, if you want jokes that we think are funny and probably most people don't think are funny you'll probably get them on our Polytrex Twitter account you can also find us on uh, other places what are these other places Barry? you can find us just on the tricordertransmissions.com you can find us on Facebook uh, though I will say admittedly we're not terribly active other than just putting an episode down every now and again. But you can go onto the tricordertransmissions.com and leave a message on SpeakPipe. And if you're there, you can check out the almost 400 episodes that the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network has. We've got Reading Trek, we've got Drawing Trek, Trek Ranks, Trek Profiles, Disco Trek, Shore Leave, The Original Mission, Weekly Trek, and Sober Trek. So there is so much going on all the time. With the dropping of, uh, of Star Trek Discovery, I have been keeping up with Disco Trek, which is always so much fun too. So you should check them out and uh, yeah if you're looking at supporting the network we do have the uh, special little patreon button and for as little as a dollar a month you can get early access to all the shows on the network you'll get a chance to participate in hangouts with hosts you'll get swag and of course our eternal love for supporting this work we love to send out to you on the other side of these tubes we call the internets so i think with that let's uh, let's get on to the news mr shashank what do you say yes let's get on to the news but first i i also wanted to before we did that give our listeners a quick update on our Patreon. Uh, For people who have been following or maybe not following, they completely revitalized the whole thing. So there are now different structures and they're really cool. There are tiers based on specific metals from Star Trek. So I believe there's a Latinum tier that you can get and an Omega metal tier. It's all kind of cool things. But uh, for for instance, from the Polytrex point of view, we do a crazy quirky thing here called uh, debate treks, which is where we take a topic and we debate about it by having 10 questions and a real structured debate. Uh, and we let you, the audience, decide who won the debate when we put a poll out once the episode's up. If you graduate, or if you upgrade, rather, to the $5 tier, you can send us a a debate Trex topic, and Barry and I will debate it. Here's the best part. You can make up the 10 questions, and you can moderate this debate. 
Of course, the the winner will still be decided through the poll. But yeah, that's a lot of power to you and a lot of fun for us. So consider doing that on Patreon. I am waiting for that like a dog straining against an ever weakening leash. That <laughs> is going to be so much fun. Uh, yep, I cannot wait. But uh, let's give the people what they want. Here's the news. Welcome everyone back to the news. Today is a interesting uh, time. Definitely, we've got uh, a lot of things happening all over the world. We're going to be bouncing around to several different hemispheres. But the first one, I actually have a question, and Shashank, I'm going to ask you this question too um, about the first news piece. So, in November, actually starting in August, talks started in this in this country uh, about about changing the constitution. And um, with that, in this country that uh, I'm not saying the name of just yet, they uh, started a series of town halls over the course of, well, November, December, January, February, um, so four months. And in that time, they averaged about 133,000 meetings with 9 million people participating in these town hall meetings over their constitution. In that time, they came up with uh, 229 articles um, from an original, I think it was uh, a much higher number than that. Um, they had a, a bunch of articles that they uh, that they wanted to get going, um, and they managed to boil it down to 229 over the four months of these town hall meetings and people getting together. So about a week ago from this recording period, they had their vote, and it was done uh, at 25,340 schools with approximately 200,000 students helping to facilitate. And if you were 16 years of age or up, you got to vote on the constitution so guess where where i'm talking about hmm. for our listeners at home uh, you can guess to just shout it as loud as you can out the window hmm. uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to pull out that thread uh it's they're trying to come up with a new constitution so it probably isn't one of those communist nations can't be no 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 of course not it wouldn't be it is it is the the arch nemesis of uh, of the united states or at least one of them it's uh, the the original uh, not one korea no, no, it's not North Korea. Iran? No, no, it's not Canada. <laughs> no, of course it's not Canada. <laughs> uh, any democratic nation in the world? <laughs> it's Cuba. Yeah, no, Cuba. Cuba. So they 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 relooked at their their constitution, and the president, uh, the only thing that he had to say on the whole thing was by casting his ballot as well. So I mean, unless he participated in some of these meetings, which I'm almost certain he did, but. Um, it's a really interesting uh, constitution. It, it, it was made by the people and for the people, which is something that uh, I know my American colleagues like the term of. So really, really interesting and amazing. And I guess, you know, the connection obviously is I would love to see like maybe in, maybe in the Picard series or, or in a series coming up, really seeing a United Federation of Planets election take place where they like elect a leader or someone has to do something, you know, in terms of leading, um, that would be really, really cool to see. So, I mean, I know we have, I know the Federation does have like a president and stuff like that, but I just love to see an actual thing happen, an actual election. That'd be really cool. Uh, and, you know, no matter where you are in space or on Earth, this is democracy in action, right? And the fact that it comes from a nation that more or less has been the victim uh, in, in a lot of ways of the Americocentric perspective of things, of uh, the world mainly buying the viewpoint that, oh, if it's not 
for America. There are things that are really wrong with it. But people forget just a few years ago, we had diplomatic relations with them. And when I say we, I mean the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were taken away after the new administration came to power. But it's it's definitely... It's definitely progress. It's uh, it, it's not unlike the season one relationship of Bajor and Cardassia. You know, they were they were fresh out, and maybe there isn't genocide involved, but there is definitely uh, awkwardness. There is uh, a complex thread of relationships. There is a really complex history for Cuba and the world's viewpoint on Cuba. So, but like Bejo rebuilding itself and doing their best to come up with what works for them, I applaud Cuba for doing this. Yeah, and and I mean, just the the idea that they have eighty six percent voter turnout. That's I mean, that's something that's unheard of in so many countries, especially in the ones that you and I occupy. So I would say more than anything, this is another idea of where you know you can you can really see um, the democratic process of a nation really kind of work to emancipate its people. And I think that's that's the story of Cuba is is a, a long walk toward emancipation. And for the new the new leader to be to be doing such a thing, I think it's appropriate. It had uh, Raul Castro's approval as well. He was he was on board for the whole thing. So I do think this is a great step for Cuba in a direction all its own still, and uh, definitely not one that is going to be hampered by any external pressure. So I'd love to see though, I'd love to see an actual Star Trek election and maybe that just won't won't turn heads there won't be as many explosions but uh, i mean i'd love to see kurtwood smith be the federation president as well but here we are anyways moving on to our next topic um we have a uh, bit of an unfortunate scenario the police officer who shot stephen clark uh, apparently is going to be um deemed uh, uncharged he's he's just going he's just going to walk away from that i guess is the uh, the frustrating thing and so what happened basically was there was a report of a man breaking car windows and um they ended up shooting clark eight times in his grandmother's backyard uh, mistaking a, a cell phone for a handgun and then for a while they said it was might have been a crowbar or something like that um, no he was literally just holding a cell phone talking to his buddy and was killed so I'm really upset to hear that. And, um, of course, you know, when we think of what is the price of, of freedom and justice, it's vigilance, ever vigilance. And I think that, uh, in this case, vigilance has failed, uh, Mr. Clark. And I'm really, really upset about that. And I really look forward to being back in a star society where, uh, where that sort of stuff doesn't happen anymore. But here we are in the mirror universe. What's weird is that, if, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but there is also a B story to this case where the police dug up some texts that he has, he sent to his wife or oh. something. And they said, because I, I believe those were not, you know, those were texts between a husband and an ex-wife. And uh, they, they were not pleasant texts. And they said, oh, well, this guy sent these texts. Uh, and they're pushing that narrative as a way to... Uh, I don't know, as a way to justify that they killed a guy because he had a cell phone in his hand instead of a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hope I'm not getting that wrong, but the the fact that somebody's using that as an excuse to just kill an unarmed black man is, uh, it, it's a scary time. Well, yeah. it, it brings me back to what Marco Limo said at STLV when he was talking about his and Jeffrey Coombs's portrayal of those mm-hmm. cops. Um in in the unforgettable uh, episode of of Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars, and 
they're like, yeah, you know, we, we killed a, we killed a guy, but at least we, at least we shot him in the front, not in the back. And, uh, you know, he's, he's talking about, you know, um, African American people being shot in the back. There was uh, one account where that happened a ways back, but, uh, this sort of feels like that as well, where again, just the, the hand of the law is, uh, sweeping a little harder than it needs to. And, you know, if we're going to get to a, a better place, then uh, this sort of stuff really needs to be shouted from the rooftops um, and, and, and said everywhere. We can't, we can't forget Stephen Clark's name or any of the names of the countless other people, I guess. It's, it's getting, the list is, is pretty embarrassing um, on, a, on a humanitarian level, I'd say, at this point. So I'm hoping for justice. But uh, moving on to our final news point, this one is, uh, again, kind of near and dear, and I'm going to be giving Shashank the majority of the mic here for, for this. But, uh, of course, our mainstream media is more interested in, in sort of flavor of the week stories and the idea of India and Pakistan not getting along, I guess, is sort of a thing time in memoriam. But uh, both nations having nuclear capability, um, tensions have started to uh, broil over and... Um, yeah, we're dealing with something that could kick off pretty badly. So, Shashank, how are you doing? What are you thinking? What's what's the story here? I'm I'm going to do my best to get through this, but if I if I break up, you guys will know why. Uh, this is a terrible terrible responsibility that we have in the show of uh, doing the news, and I know we talk about violence and war often, but uh, okay, I'll I'll get to the news. Uh, on February 14th, a suicide bomber rammed a car into a bus carrying Indian military police in Kashmir, killing more than 40 in what was described as one of the deadliest attacks on security forces in the region in decades. Uh, the 40 people, which uh, most people might not know, are what are called Jawans. Jawans are younger people uh, who tend to be under uh, 25, and they're people who have uh, since... Uh, middle school they they have to shift they have to move away from their homes and move into what are called army schools and uh, i had i had friends like that who uh, i we were playing one summer vacation and next time i never saw them until i saw them in uniform 10 years later later and uh, uh, so this suicide bomber rammed his car into a bus carrying these young jawans so people who had not even actually made it to the real military they were they were people in training and uh, so that that was a heartbreaking day uh, and i apologize for the the breakup in my voice uh, and on february 15th a pakistan based terror group uh, jesh a mohammed claimed responsibility for this attack and uh, what happened is Essentially, from then on, a few days later, uh, there was uh, there was a gun battle uh, that broke out at the border because tensions were already high, and nine people, including four Indian soldiers and a policeman, were killed during this gun battle in India-controlled Kashmir, meaning it was uh, uh, there was a shootout between the border from Pakistan and India in that Indian-controlled Kashmir territory, and so more people died. Is I guess what I'm trying to say, and. Uh, there were talks that were going on, but they were definitely not helping. There is a bus service that passes through Srinagar, which is the capital of Indian-controlled Kashmir. And it goes from the Indian-controlled Kashmir territory to Muzaffarabad, which is the capital of Pakistan-controlled Kashmir. The way to understand it is not unlike the U.S.-Canada border, Barry. Uh, let's say there is a city on one side and the other side, is there is another city and it's separated by a border. 
and there's a bus that goes through it that takes you know people who work in India and then go home to Pakistan or vice versa. And this service was halted on the 20th. Uh, this is significant because it took a long time to even open up the borders to have any kind of uh, communication between our two countries. Things are so sensitive, so fragile. And this was going well for over 10 years. I want to say we started in 2004 is when the bus service started, as formally establishing some semblance of diplomacy between the countries. But when this was halted, uh, we had basically gone back to that. And February 26th is uh, when India reported to the world that its Air Force conducted strikes against a Jaish e Mohammed training base in Pakistan. And they killed a very large number of terrorists. That that was what was quoted in the uh, in the media. And then uh, later there was uh, uh, the the flights that went over. Uh, some of them came back, but some of them were captured by the Pakistani government. Uh, and uh, to their credit, on February 28th, Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, said that he will release the Indian pilot. Uh, who was captured, and I believe on March 1st, so two days ago, this pilot was ca- was released back to Indian territory. So that is where we are now. And uh, it's if I was to draw a Star Trek analogy, this is, uh, at first I thought it was like Starfleet fighting the Klingons. And in my, in my not very mature head, I equated the Klingons to uh, my fellow, na- my, my neighbors, Pakistan. And uh, I equated the the righteous Starfleet to India. But it's actually, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, it's actually, a better analogy is two houses of the Klingon world fighting each other. India and Pakistan were not 72 years ago, the same country. If people drew out my lineage, there is a 50% chance my grandfather might have lived in Pakistan. And the same holds for people in Pakistan and India. So uh, it's this is like Klingon houses fighting. And we are fighting over things that Klingon houses fought over, which is land and power and money and uh, really pointless earthly things. And if, if we were to imagine the, the big piece at the center of it all, Kashmir, uh, which is the... Uh, which I, in my opinion, as an Indian believe, belongs to India. And then a Pakistani would say it belongs to Pakistan. And that's the fundamental battle. And there have been, if if people were to put numbers, there have been millions of lives lost uh, since this war began way back in the 50s for this tiny piece of land, which is probably, if I was to put a number on it, maybe half the size of Texas. And the fact that, we as two countries who, you know, keep producing some of the smartest people in the world. Uh, once you come out of, of India and you move here, you you tend to see how how petty the, the battles are, really. But when something like this happens, the uh, the heart stops for a second because you 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 just know the people you've grown up with. And, uh, you, you know, the, the as kids, they tell you, Main jawan banna hon, which in English translates to, I, I want to be a jawan. And jawan is not even someone who's in the army. It's someone who gets a chance to be in the army. So there is a whole crazy rigmarole of training that goes through just to be considered for it. And uh, the fact that somebody that young who were so ambitious and only wanted to serve their country were 
uh, killed uh, and more than 40 of them. And that that led to these two nations, to these two great, glorious, petty nations to start a 70-plus-year-old battle. It's It just reminds we are we're both Klingon houses. We might think we are Klingon and Starfleet, but the truth is we are... We're both we're both houses, and maybe we need a Ferengi to come and teach us what what it what it means to be Klingon, and uh, how how limiting our uh, our senses can be. But again, I'm sorry. I guess this is the first time I cried on my podcast, so I broke that record, uh, which is great. Uh, but that that's that's what happened, and. Uh, I'm I'm so glad we didn't record it on February 15th because I it would have just been a puddle of tears. Uh, it was it was a tough time to process for all of us uh, because my parents live back home and both India and Pakistan have nukes. There is a very real possibility that th- there was a there was a greater than zero possibility that I would have woken up one morning and found out that half my country has been nuked. I and <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah. that's where that that's where that that news is. But what is your take on this, Barry? I'm I'm interested to hear your side of this. I, I you know you you mentioned one piece in there, and I think it's a it's a humbling thing to to be in the position you are in right now. And and your your take is good because you know saying you know well well one side's the Federation, one side's the Klingons, um, saying that you you know it's two Klingon houses that need to learn how to how to coexist again. And, um, you know, saying that, yeah, you know, we, we come from the same country, ultimately, you know, 70 some odd years ago. And a lot of people forget that. And, and it's it's so easy to forget our origins and, and where we're from. And this, this, you know, when India was partitioned, it wasn't partitioned on on any real, you know, difference. It was it was partitioned on colonial lines. And again, that's that's so unfortunate that that again you guys are sort of suffering this this aftershock of colonialism coming in and and causing these differences between you. Um, it reminds me of the chase actually from from the next generation, where you know you've got the the Klingon, Cardassians, the Romulans, uh, and then the Federation. They all go and find from uh, Professor Galen. Uh, research that that they're actually all from a founding species that like seeded them to together you know mm-hmm. and stuff and and I guess like in that respect you know you could say if we go by that rubric obviously we all are one species of people and that's that's really the the what what that episode's saying and maybe that's what we need to do is uh, is show some Star Trek to some folk and maybe maybe get things into perspective because uh, you're right you're a people with a shared history. Um, right, the uh, the Romulans and the Vulcans, uh, both proud people, and uh, wow, this actually ties in so good to our main topic that's coming up. So I'll give you the last <laughs> word, Shashank, before we move on to the last topic, or to the main topic. Watch Star Trek, remain peaceful. Uh, please do not bring bigotry on this bridge. There is no room for it. everyone to our main topic, uh, keeping up with the one-word theme of uh, Polytrex A, which is our, which started with our last episode, episode 20 with villains. We, we'll see how long we can pull at this thread, but we'll, we'll keep our themes short and sweet. And this episode's theme is civilizations. We want to 
starting with this episode, we don't know how long it'll go for, but we want to deconstruct the civilizations within Star Trek. We want to look at them from the real world lens. We want to understand what these fictional civilizations mean. What do they mean for us as people living in the 21st century? We want to understand vice versa, what some of the parallels that they were warning us about that might come up in the late 21st century or 21st, 22nd century that we should be curious about and uh, try to avoid. Uh, but most importantly, we want to humanize these civilizations. Often we are so caught up in the story and uh, we're so caught up in the characters and what is about to happen next. We don't often pause and sit down and really think about what these civilizations are trying to teach us, what the pitfalls of humanity are and what some of the triumphs of humanity are that are celebrated in these civilizations and what really is is being put across outside of the cool story of it all. We can all agree Star Trek has great stories, but if Gene Roddenberry's vision was not just telling good stories, it was telling, it was teaching us morals and principles through the guise of good stories. So in continuing with that tradition, we're hoping today to deconstruct three civilizations, just talk about them from a political and cultural standpoint and compare them to some of the real world civilizations that we have and some of the peoples that we still have around us, peoples that we have lost uh, and We'll we'll take it from there. It'll 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 be it'll be a light-hearted, hopefully uh, positive conversation. Uh, nothing that uh, one of us might cry about. I I'll I'll do my best to not cry this time. But uh, Barry, are you ready to talk about civilizations, Barry? I've been super excited for this one since since you came up with the idea. Of, I've been bouncing around a couple of different ones, and and originally we were going to do the the Kelpians, but there was a massive discovery related plot twist there. That if you are caught up with discovery, um, you'll be you'll be nodding emphatically right now of like, yeah, no, we can see why you've decided to pump the brakes on the Kelpians. So today we're going to be looking at the Bajorans, the Klingons, and one of our absolute favorites, the Ferengi. So starting with the Bajorans, it's it's interesting to to be going starting out with the Bajorans because they have a contained series arc, though of course we do see their the seeds of of their culture being planted in in TNG, but of course Deep Space 9 just cranks that one to 11. And it's funny because, you know, I have always seen things from, you know, that kind of Western example and, and whatnot. But uh, Shashank, you've said that that they really remind you of Hindu culture. And I would be really interested in seeing how that um, how that connects and, 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 and maybe kind of start the conversation with, with your take on it, because that's not a take that I have ever had. And now that I have it, I would like to hear more. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about the Bajorans because uh, this was a, a take for me for this civilization that was organic. I didn't have to go anywhere to read about it or uh, try to figure out what they were doing because to me, the things they were doing were so immediately poignant and relevant. For instance, in the pilot, the first time I saw Kira, she had uh, the the Bajoran ear ornament. And that is very, very typical of our Hindu women. Hindu women wear a lot of jewelry. In fact, the much like the wedding ring, our significance, significance of, uh, I'm sorry, our symbolism for marriages during a marriage ceremony, uh, the husband puts a tilak or a red dot on the wife's forehead, and then he ties a necklace around her head. So, uh, and, and during the wedding, she's dressed up with a lot of jewelry, including that year ornament. And it's not something that our women wear every day, but it's something that our women would wear 
to a prom or to a wedding or to a birthday party so the minute i saw that i was i, I thought huh that seems familiar and uh, i thought well that's that's probably where they got it from but that's great i'm excited to see where the bajorans go but then i started seeing so many parallels the bajorans worship idols what's like hindus do there is a lot of idol worship in fact a lot of big plot threads revolved around objects and the orbs the the orbs to me are are idols that's that's what they signify to me and even the way they pray unlike muslim prayer or jewish prayer that doesn't always require a certain amount of community that you can pray on your own but there isn't as much emphasis on community hindu prayer or the hindu style of prayer is actually the exact opposite it actually is uh, more important and in a in a lot of ways if you're uh, very traditional much like some bajorans are it, you always pray in a community no matter what time of day it is no matter what time of the week it is and the fact that they have uh, a gratitude festival and the the hindus have a gratitude festival which is uh, very much along the lines of what the bajorans are doing they have a festival in which everybody celebrates they burst fireworks that's diwali and uh, there there is so many uh, parallels between the bajorans and uh, uh, hindus but the most important one to me on a uh, anthropological level is much like uh, the bajorans the hindu nation india which which is majority hindu was pillaged and completely ravaged by colonialism and it wasn't until 1947 that uh, this nation that is tens of thousands of years old and is has a civilization older than egypt and greece uh, was was brought down to its knees and on august 15 1947 when we won our independence from the british we went from being one of the richest countries in the world just 200 years ago to then becoming a third world nation and one of the poorest nations in the world so uh, apart from the social and the cultural uh similarities that i have seen between the bajorans and the hindus this one strikes at, at the at, at its heart to me when i when i try to understand the story and try to break down the bajoran story is uh, it, it, uh granted we didn't have an outright genocide but our people were fighting wars that they didn't have a stake in uh, there were uh, droughts and famines being manufactured so our people would die so the british could take our resources and they could justify killing people and having power over us so in yeah, in in a lot of ways but most importantly the the uh, the post colonial indian story that's where bajor and india and the hindu culture really come together for me what do you think am i completely off base no you're you're way on point and and there's a few little pieces that i want to just just sort of bounce off of um i was taking notes while you were talking that was great um first of all you know i like that the prophets or wormhole aliens whatever they take on avatars much like the uh the hindu gods right so yep absolutely um, different avatars will will act on behalf of that of that demigod which is really cool the other piece that you'd mentioned was you know india as a culture being older than than recorded history in a lot of cases mm-hmm. right um and you think of that as being an ancient people and the idea that the bajorans were were traveling the stars long before a lot of other people 
uh, in that area were with their solar sail uh, ships and stuff, and the possibility that there may actually be a closer connection to the Cardassians than the Cardassians would like to admit. I think in a lot of cases, you see India's influence even on massive empires like China. You see India's influence in Greece. Um, you see India's influence down down through Africa, uh, and and you know through the the Micronesian. Um, and the Polynesian island chains as well. It's uh, it is it it is a um, a pillar of of human history. The uh, the Indian people. So definitely the other piece that you're talking about, obviously, is like the Bajorans. They are a post occupation people. You know, and and often I think people make a lot of connections of the Bajorans to like say the Jews of Europe. And you know, I definitely see that that uh, that connection being made a lot and it's one that i think has been talked about at length so i like this other take that uh, we as westerners w- wouldn't have of course the other really big connector i would have would be like the chinese of shanghai as well uh, again brutally occupied and told they were being treated well um, which is always a very scary thought and i guess you know to get a better understanding of Bejor as it was occupied, I would say looking at the Palestinians uh, and their plight and looking at indigenous people around the world in, uh, you know, here in Canada and the United States, in Mexico, uh, in South America. Um, and you, you see that uh, in, in Australia and New Zealand, um, you see an occupied people uh, there as well. So yeah, the Bajorans are, are a great mirror to so many different societies. And yeah, Indian, I would have never thought of it. So that's awesome. Uh, no, those are great points. And uh, you're absolutely right when you when you bring up certain cultures like the Chinese or Shanghai. Uh, I think one really cool thing about the Bajorans is that they dare to touch upon the subject of religion with Deep Space Nine, and they did it right. They they didn't they didn't pander it to the religious folk. Uh, they didn't outright say you know religion is bad. The main character is supposed to be an emissary, and he, one of his bigger conflicts is him dealing with that responsibility. For the longest time, he doesn't even know what to do with it, and uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of uh, issues that religious people people with esoteric or uh, maybe not so well documented faiths like Hinduism deal with is they when you don't have the right information and you have so much to uh, to understand I think somebody did the math and we have 16,000 gods in Hinduism that's a crazy amount of polytheism uh, and when and it made sense to me when Cisco was told you know you're emissary to these prophets who are really there but they're not really there they're playing with you they're not playing with you Time, they don't understand time, but they invented time. So it's it's just the mind boggles. And the fact that they did religion right in that show is one of the many triumphs of DS9. And uh, the, the fact that religion was touched upon, it was not talked down to, it was not talked up, but it was dealt with as a real faith. And it was a it was a really good plot line. Is is what makes I think Bajorans very much worthy of discussion. Oh man, we we you know this is already starting to look like it could be the entire episode. So I am going to move on to the next group who also get a <laughs> really good swift uh, kick of extra exposition in Deep Space Nine and now of course in Discovery, and that is the Klingons. And to start them off, obviously, I often find that the Klingons are perfect when you connect them to a feudal society. Of course, you've got the different houses and everything thing like that that are always sort of kind of at war with each other but maybe not sometimes and, and it really reminds me of, of feudal japan and 
of course, I have a bit of a specialization there in terms of Japanese history. If you if you want actually more history of Japan, there's actually a podcast called History of Japan with Isaac Meyer. This is just a straight up out of nowhere plug, but uh, he you has, shall. yeah he's done hundreds of episodes on so many different topics. I would highly recommend him. He is uh, he is loads of fun. Um, so yeah, just. Isaac, if you're listening for whatever crazy reason, I love your show. But uh, what I really like about about you know Japanese feudal society is it bases itself off of honor so much, right? It's this idea, the idea of honor cannot be forgotten. It has to be held up at every at every point. But when you actually delve into the real history of, say, like in this case, the Japanese samurai or the the budo class or the bushi, they um, they weren't honorable really at all, and and you know they they ran away if if things weren't looking good. They would spend most of their time in in early history shouting at each other, trying to figure out who had enough clout um, to to actually fight them. And usually it was just firing a couple of arrows at each other and seeing what what sticks, I guess, is the best way to put it. You get on later into like the Sengoku period when it's just all of these different states warring with each other. In a lot of cases, the the leaders would would hire people to go collect heads of their enemies. And sometimes if they couldn't find the enemy, they just cut someone else's head off and try to pass it off for the enemy that they beat. So, you know, just just the layers of of corruption underneath this facade of honor is always so much fun. Uh, my favorite my favorite story actually is in the Kamakura period when um, there was a group of, uh, there was basically the emperor who was ruling, but then there was a shogun who was like a general who was like ruling on his behalf, but he didn't have any power either. The power actually went further down to a guy called the Shiken, who was like a regent for the shogun, but actually it was his wife who was telling him what to do. And then when you looked at that, it was the wife's father who was actually saying what was supposed to be happening and he was from an ancient clan called the hojo and so even there like could you see that in a klingon story where like you realize that this like plinkoing down of uh, of power and stuff like that takes you all the way to like the dad of some guy's wife um in the end i don't know if you've thought about it that way or if if you could see a could you see a star trek episode where they're basically like who's in charge with the klingons and then you find out that it's like someone ruling from the shadows of the shadows of the shadows of the shadows. I would love it if there was some some story that was told that was the Klingon version of the chase where they all the, all the houses got together and they tried to find out their lineage and they found out that it actually came from uh, feudal Japan in some way. Uh, <laughs> because you definitely hit the nail on the head with that one or you struck the battle at the blade at the right temperature <laughs> to make sure that blade is sharp. No, that was a great, great point. And to add, uh, I, I don't know if it really needs any more additions, but uh, the biggest uh, resemblance to me between the Japanese culture, uh, especially the feudal Japanese culture, and the Klingons is the idea of honorable death. For a samurai, harakiri is the practice of dying an honorable death in which you kill yourself. And for the Klingons, the idea of death is in combat. It's in war. It's it, that there is no greater way to die but from a violent death. That there is that connection of beginning your life in war, ending your life in war. And much like uh, a samurai carrying their blade, I think Klingons always have a weapon on them. Uh, they definitely always try to show pride in the fact that they have their weapon and they're ready to fight. Uh, interestingly, I was at STLV 2017. The name escapes me, but uh, I got to 
ask a question when the Klingon actors, uh, the guy who played Gauron was on stage and he was uh, uh, he was doing a panel. And I got to ask him, where did you pull your inspiration from? And he said, when I found out I landed the role, I spent a month just studying the culture uh, of feudal Japan. And he said he would practice the way they would sit, the way they would talk, the, the way they would move, the way they would think. And he used that when he got into the role and apparently that was his prep so th- that was that was great that was great connection man and uh, i i also am, am very very not really saddened but uh, from our earlier conversation in the news uh, about the india pakistan war i think a lot of uh, cultures especially those that are old like mine have these tendencies to uh, be violent for for things like the Klingons are, where they're hot-headed, they're aggressive, and uh, that is there in, I think that, that a lot of that is in India, it's in China, it's definitely in the Vietnam, and there, there is there is a lot there that the Klingons are trying to, the, the Klingons are trying to tell us. I, I'm, I'm interested uh, in, in your take on this. Do you think uh, the Klingons are a warning to us, or are they a lesson in acceptance and understanding of cultures. What what do you think uh, the the writers are trying to tell us with Klingons? Well, I think they're showing us the, the material conditions living within a feudal fascistic society, right? I mean, there is actually a Klingon ritual suicide called Hagbat. And, and you know, Worf wants to do that when he gets uh, when he gets paralyzed, of course. And then, of course, you saying that uh, Bob O'Reilly, who played Gowron, is going into Japanese history, I mean, those eyes that he would do, I mean, that's kabuki, like nobody's business, right? So I think to a degree, they are a warning in the sense that we could become hyper fascistic in that sense that we could we could overdo our our lotting of you know those who fight in in the legion of of whatever country we're a part of right like i think that uh, that is a bit of a warning and 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 to some degree it is sort of a nostalgia as well like they've they've got sort of the same jib as a as a swashbuckling knight sometimes right especially with uh, with some of the characters as as they come in you know Worf, of course plays that sort of straight face but martok you know he's very swashbuckling the way he is um he's more of like a like a sea pirate kind of thing but with that sort of same honorable code that uh, he 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 sticks to and i guess that's kind of the macho culture that i think also is a bit of a warning i think Worf is the perfect distillation of that because he's trying to temper a lot of that feeling with his with his more broad-based upbringing growing up in the United Federation of Planets where he's surrounded by people of other cultures all the time and but he is he is picking the things that he likes right he's sort of a I don't know. He's a bit of a cafeteria Klingon, right? He, he, he picks what he likes and he discards what he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we should look at, at the Klingons as a bit of a warning to what a fascistic hyper macho society will do to us. But at the same time, you know, it is kind of fun. It is a little bit tongue in cheek sometimes the way they are. And uh, it's it's a good laugh. And, and I promise this is not Indian culture celebration week, but I thought it would be worthy to point out the, the whole Klingons growing hair and not growing hair. Uh, them growing their hair when it's not a time of war. I think that is at least partly inspired by the Sikhs. Uh, The Sikh men, they never cut their hair. That's why they have their turbans is they grow their hair their entire lives and they grow their beards their entire lives and they try to contain it in that turban. And much like the Klingons, the Sikhs also carry a traditional religious weapon 
on them. The car pan. Yep. And uh, I don't know if that was intentional or maybe it was just happy coincidence, but there are there are very uh, popular tales told about their warrior spirit. There are there are six, much like the 300 of Sparta, there is a 15 of, uh, I think, Kesari is what the place was called, where 15, six fought off, I think, five or 6,000 soldiers to protect their land. There is a very popular tale. But not for nothing. I, I think there are a lot of, lot of places to draw from, but I yes, I definitely think the Klingons are... Uh, I bet maybe not in TOS so much, but at least for TNG, they definitely sat down and said, okay, we have the Japanese culture. How do we break it down and rebuild it for the Klingons yeah. so they don't actually see it as, oh, they're directly ripping it off, but the, the essence is there. Of course, that that's also like a take of them, though, from sort of when Michael Dorn takes them on, because before they were just sort of like the Russians, kind of, right? But I always found them, they were too aggressive to be the Russians. I always thought that the Romulans would be better in terms of the way the United States characterized the Soviet Union. But, um, you know, there there is a bit of that idea of, you know, the burly Russian, you know, ready to fight. And of course, uh, when you have trouble with tribbles, there's that big brawl that takes place. But uh, definitely the, the, the Klingons I grew up with were, were feudal Japanese, uh, to say the least. And I'd say the same for you, right? And uh, a lot of the credit for that that goes to Rondi Moore because he's the guy who who made the Klingons what they were before he came along. You're right. That's what that's what the Klingons were. They were just oh burly people coming to fight and honor and stuff. But the fact that they did an entire mythology and when Rondi Moore went over, I believe he wrote Way of the Warrior and Sword of Kalis and a lot of those uh, mythological episodes. And uh, I forget John Krikorian of Track Profiles gave me the name of a book that is basically a novel in which the entire myth of the Klingon culture is written. When we post the episode, I'll, I'll be sure to find out and post the name. But uh, Rondi Moore credits, when people credit him for the Klingon uh, evolution and bringing them to the, uh, to the forefront, he credits them to that particular book. And he says, go and read uh, this book that was a novel that was written, that I basically read and just stole from. So yeah, just definitely... Uh, definitely very, very cool and very, very culturally relevant, the Klingon. Here we are coming with our, our last our last alien group. And uh, of course, you know, they're they're a favorite of yours. And, and for me, I just sort of see them as a parody of capitalism. But uh, give me what you got on the Ferengi. Ferengi rule of acquisition number 75. Home is where the heart is, but the stars are made of platinum. <laughs> that, that is, in a sense to me, uh, the, the greatest... Uh, description of the Ferengis. It's interesting that it's in their own book, but uh, yeah, the Ferengis are they're my favorite race in all of Star Trek. Quark is one of my top three favorite characters, and I'm one of those people who, except for Prophet and Lace, I will say I will not defend Prophet and Lace, but for other than that, I will defend every Ferengi episode as some of the more interesting, well-thought stories of uh, of Star Trek. And uh, I think I could do an entire episode about Ferengis for sure. But if, if I was to try to uh, contain them, uh, sort of bring out the bullet points of what makes them so interesting is there is the parody of capitalism. Barry, you're right. But I think Ferengis are hyper capitalists. They, they actually, they build their family structure over capitalism. And, and they, uh, they decide to remove an entire gender for reasons that you know, that is so uh, archaic and uh, things that even for its time when the show was being made, people are like, dude, that's way too far. You can't say stuff like that. And 
the Ferengis are they are capitalism taken to the nth degree. They are greed taken to the nth degree, and they are uh, the the love for material things taken to the nth degree. Like uh, like the quote I just read to you, uh, they they say there is a home and our heart is there, but we need to go to the stars because that's where the Latin is, and. Uh, if you go through the, the Ferengi rules of acquisition, you will uh, you you'll see that they, they at one point say war is good for profit, and then they say peace is good for profit. So when they've written a book with the uh, express intent of making money at all times possible, and that's what is great about the journey that Ferengis take in DS9 uh, and going forward, because they, there is this idea presented to you that there is this entire culture that only cares about money. And then they show you three characters, uh, one of whom dares to love and actually give the woman he loves equality. And then they show a character who dares to become, who dares to become more than what his culture has offered him by choosing to dedicate himself to the mission of exploration and peace and uh, the equality of all peoples. And then they give you a character whose entire arc is being stuck in between his home world's people that he's so possessive about while also having to deal with the fact that he's in a diverse environment and has to uh, himself diversify in, in terms of uh, ideals and principles and be more human and less Ferengi uh, uh, for better or for worse. And he almost hates himself for that. Uh, like there are episodes in which Quark talks about root beer and he says, how can you drink that? And yet there is that beautiful exchange between him and Garrick when they talk about root beer. And that takes on a whole new meaning. But it's it's uh, really, really, really cool because at the end of the show where uh, Quark arcs take him, he decides to stick to his archaic methods and he wants to make that work. So that shows you how nature has won over nurture. For two characters, nurture won over nature. They actually got out of those archaic ways. But the third character, who we were led to believe because he was doing all these good things from, I believe, the is the name the, uh, of the episode The Ascent, where Odo yes. and... Yeah. Uh, and like if you look at episodes like that and uh, the, the Babel episode in which... Or may, I forget the name of the episode, but everybody is incapacitated and Quark is the only one who can save everyone on, on the station, and he does. When you look at all those episodes, you're led to believe this character is going to take one journey. But in, in actuality, he's taking a journey uh, in which he goes back to that parody of capitalism and he accepts it fully. And to the point where he separates his family and he says, I will actually fight my own brother to keep these ways alive. So it's a very, very interesting highly underrated culture that has so many stories to tell well you know from from a marxist perspective the best thing about the ferengi is they show that no matter how far capitalism pervades and ruins a society and takes takes you know takes down one entire gender and entire sex of their society so that the other can can maximize profit for themselves even in that moment there is still hope there is still a shining example of of someone coming along who will fight and uh, i think the best thing about max grudanchik's portrayal of uh, of rom 
is that idea that that from the humblest places comes you know some of the fiercest voices and uh, you know behind every strong man is a strong woman and the same thing vice versa right it's just just seeing lita and and how she sort of grows and even seeing the community between the actors now right uh, together you really do see uh, the real humanity of people coming through that that do help each other that do want to put people over profit rather than profit over people and and all that sort of stuff so yeah I mean, even even a leftist can can uh, can appreciate the 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 Ferengi for more than just the parody. And you're right, the the arc that uh, Ira Bear and and the others in in uh, Deep Space Nine give the Ferengi is fabulous. And I will say. I would really love to see in one of the seasons of Discovery. I'd love to see a Ferengi show up early, like with their whips. Still, that would be that would be loads of fun. Dude, they should show us a young Grand Nagus. They should do it. <laughs> we need a young Grand Nagus. <laughs> That's inconceivable. <laughs> uh, actually, when when I was watching the Ferengis, uh, they also have not really an idol worshiping culture, but they they have a very material worshiping culture, like they're. The, when you die, you go to the grand economy, the great economy. I, I forget where where that's called, but uh, those are there is an afterlife where it's just full of money, uh, and you basically have all the money you want. That's those are those are again very much uh, indicative, and uh, they they remind me of certain aspects of Hindu culture uh, because people in my country also use religion for selfish purposes. There is an uh, there is a political party in power now called the BJP, and they want India to be a Hindu nation, and they're very clear about it. Even though India was founded on equal level by Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Jains, Buddhists, uh, and these people want to establish a hierarchy, much like the Ferengis, they want to put. They have they're using religion and they're using their ancient texts to try to put forward a selfish purpose. So, yeah, in, in those ways, these unsuspecting, mostly funny Ferengis can, are also a warning to me in, in, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that that's the thing. I mean, that that is sort of the nature uh, nature of capitalism. I mean, you and I both live in a capitalistic country, and no, I'm not going to wear a barrel and eat beans. I live in this place, and of course, I can be critical of the economy that my my and your country is a, is a part of, because I live in it every single day. And yeah, I benefit from it 100%, but that's because, you know... Um, I am a settler Canadian, so of course I would in that sense. A lot of things have been set aside for my behalf. And I think that's sort of the the, the basis of capitalism is is equality just isn't possible and, and, it, and it wouldn't be possible. And then some things that are really shocking to outsiders start taking place, right? Like, for instance, you know, when we found out that Ferengi women weren't able to wear clothes and we found out that... Uh, the whole hierarchy and and power of of the Ferengi is really just just one of exploitation and trying to find your way around the rules and and stuff like that. And so, I don't know, it reminds me of a game of Monopoly I saw just recently for sale called the Cheaters Edition. And I'm like, oh, cool, it's the Ferengi version of Monopoly. Isn't that great um, that they would actually put that in? So yeah, I, I think looking at at um, looking at the Ferengi as a real mirror to humanity right now, and the fact that you know in every single one of us is a little ROM, which is a, a nice thing to think, because uh, I'll never forget what Max Grudanchik said about his character uh, last year at STLV, where he said that ROM is a better man than me. And when he said that, he started crying. So yeah, I mean, that that's, that says it all. I don't know if we 
said a whole lot, but we definitely had fun doing this episode. We'll definitely do a part two. Uh, some things we can tease. There'll definitely be that Kelpian conversation, maybe closer to when the season ends, so we have full context of what's going on. Uh, I just uh, begged Barry to do this. We'll definitely do one for the Q continuum. We yeah. want to understand what the hell is going on there. And uh, yeah, we'll do, definitely do Romulans. We'll do Vulcans. Send in your suggestions too, right? Yeah. To, uh, Tholians and who knows what. At Polytrex, at gutter underscore hero, at beyond deford. Uh, that is D-E-F-J-O-R-D. Yeah. And B- yeah, I messed that up. B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D, beyond deford. Yeah. You can also find just, me just by looking at BDEF. You'll find me fast that way. Just Yeah, just, just say, hey, talk about this and we will find a way to talk about it. Uh, there is the founders. There is the prophets. Oh my God, the mind boggles. But... Yeah, this. Uh, I'm glad we opened this Pandora's box, Barry. I dare you to stop me now. Well, you know, uh, just that's the point is we'll keep going. And uh, of course, with uh, keeping going, there's so many other shows to watch on the Tricorder Transmissions. But uh, of course, if you find yourself wanting to go further afield, you've got our buddies Dan and Bill uh, down at uh, the Trek Geeks. And then uh, you have our friends at Delta Flyer as well. I, I have a... I have a bit of a recommendation for you guys. This is not a Star Trek podcast, so don't be mad at me. Oh, but I already if you did are, one today, so don't worry. But if you are tired of listening to Star Trek podcasts or you want a break, Will Ferrell, I kid you not, is doing a Ron Burgundy podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> it is hilarious. If you like the movie Anchorman, if you like the Will Ferrell type of comedy, his second episode is Meditation with Deepak Chopra, where he's invited Deepak Chopra, who's a, a hypnotist uh, or meditation guru, and they're both trying to meditate. It's an in, it's just his third episode is Christmas, and that dropped two weeks ago. And he said, I'm going to talk about Christmas in the middle of February. So it's a hilarious podcast. Just I could not stop laughing. Nobody's paying me for this. I just thought it was funny, and I know, uh, I know, we we all could use a break and get some funnies on. So yeah, the Ron Burgundy podcast. Like it. Well, with that, you can find uh, Shashank at gutter gutter underscore hero uh, on the Twitter, and you can find me again at b j o r n d e f j o r d, and you can find us at Politrex as well on Twitter and Facebook. So, and if you're listening to us on iTunes, please leave us a review. We very much appreciate it. Yes, both in both sides of the uh, both sides of the the forty ninth parallel. Of course, you Canadian listeners can put in a, a positive review for us on the Canadian side, and then I can brag to Shashank because he's been sending me a ton of American ones, but I can't see them. So that is important. So with that, we will say live long and prosper and onward to start signing.